Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. We're the largest U.S.-based international worker rights organization. We empower workers to raise their voice for dignity on the job, for justice in their communities, for greater equality in the global economy, and for one just future. Today, we're taking a look at police violence part of a rising tide of global crackdowns targeting marginalized and impoverished communities, workers, and young people struggling to support themselves. This repression has escalated during COVID-19. As authoritarian-minded governments take advantage of national lockdowns to silence legitimate social and labor movements, movements that have been addressing issues of inequality that existed long before the pandemic, these countries have seen continued protest and ongoing resistance. Here in the United States, inspired and led by the Black Lives Matter movement, workers and citizens alike are protesting police brutality and demanding new levels of accountability and reform for the agencies that have ostensibly been created to protect and serve their communities. We wanted to check in with a couple of our recent guests who we know have themselves experienced extraordinary police repression to hear how they are saying no to state violence against their communities and in doing so, reimagining policing. First, we dive into the situation in Nigeria where in October 2020, young people across the country took to the streets calling for the government to disband an abusive police unit known as the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS. The hashtag EndSARS protest movement took off after a video was circulated that showed a young man shot by police and abandoned by the side of the road. Protest against this abuse and the decades-long police brutality that preceded it built up over the following weeks. The police responded by beating and killing those who peacefully demonstrated for their democratic rights to safe public space and fair treatment under the law. When the government disbanded SARS, the inquiry panels they set up to investigate the decades of abuse by SARS officials were also inexplicably discontinued at the same time. Yet when people came out to mark the one-year anniversary of the protests in October, Police threatened to arrest anyone who took part, and reports show continuing incidents of police brutality. Through the Federation of Informal Workers' Organizations of Nigeria, or FIWAN, market vendors and other workers in the informal economy are on the front lines of the struggle for justice and to end violence. Together with young people, they are the movement behind the hashtag EndSARS campaign, looking for a more just future. For details on the NSARS campaign and the Nigerian government's response to it, let's hear from Benga, founder and director of the Federation of Informal Workers Organizations of Nigeria. We first spoke to Brother Benga about informal employment in Nigeria in episode 10 of the podcast, and we'll link to that conversation in the show notes. 
Brother Benga is an amazing leader. I really encourage you to listen to this show. He talks about working with some of the poorest and most disenfranchised people in his country to build power, voice, and exercise their rights in a democracy to make real changes that affect real people's lives, and it's incredibly inspiring. Brother Benga, we're interested in exploring more about the popular youth movement around NSARS in Nigeria. We've been looking over the last year uh, in the COVID crisis, where there has been really in a lot of countries an epidemic of police brutality uh, in many parts of the world. We think in the United States, after the murder of George Floyd and the re-emergent national movement against racist police violence in the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement. We also know that in Nigeria, the uh, NSARS movement uh, has similarly catalyzed a lot of people across the country to, to demand fairness on the street. Can you tell us a little bit about the protests in Nigeria last year against the special anti-robbery squad, SARS? Yes. Um, well, uh the SARS has been there for over a decade, um, ostensibly set up to tackle high-level crime, especially armed robbery and kidnapping. Um, ostensibly, they report directly to the the big man of police, uh, you know, the police force, the Inspector General of Police. Uh, they, they, so the they are kind of even, they operate even above local police authorities in the states and the local communities. Uh, so they kind of ride roughshod over everybody at the local communities. Um, at first, they were apparently effective in actually addressing issues around violent crime, especially kidnapping and arm robbery. But they later progressively degenerated into uh, a, a rogue police unit uh, responsible for actually robbing their victims. Uh, um, politicians also use them to muzzle in political opponents. But at, at, at more basic levels, I think the, the situation started to become uh, intolerable uh, when they started targeting young people. And it's interesting the kind of young people they target. They actually target upper middle class kids. We have different kind of police units. We also have some of that target poor working people in the informal sector. Uh, like the traffic police, like the so-called environmental task forces, and so on and so forth. Uh, interestingly, those ones uh, have defined some way of uh, going about the daily routine of extortion and so on and so forth. Uh, but this uh, higher-level rogue police unit uh, target upper middle-class kids and uh, actually make very, you know, very big demands in terms of uh, uh, monies uh, for 
uh, young people that fall victims of their operations. Uh, so they, they, they extort monies from these kids. And uh, if you can't pay, we've had reported cases of so many young people that were killed uh, extrajudicially, um, tortured. Um, uh, we've also had strange cases of uh, substituting criminals. I mean, real criminals that were arrested. You know, they they, they arrest innocent people and uh, they arrest them and put them in place of the real criminal. They take money from the criminal, release him, and have uh, the innocent kid, you know, uh, answer for the crimes he or she did not commit. Um, so, so these are some of the atrocities uh, this police union became very notorious for. And so it was uh, not surprising that um, the protests that led to the NSAS movement was actually started by uh, a few middle-class uh, kids who decided to camp at, uh, in the front of uh, the legal status or assembly to demand uh, some kind of reform of the police unit uh, and to also uh, uh, demand accountability in their operations. But I think um, it will be incorrect to, uh, to just assume that uh, these young people came from nowhere and did what they did. I think um, activities at other levels actually emboldened them and gave them the courage to, to, to start what they did. Um, specifically from 2019, uh, when the revolutionary movement was launched, um, every other day we've had protests uh, around issues uh, about police brutality, issues centering on corruption, about uh, nepotism, inse growing insecurity in the country. So the revolutionary movement have been coming out. Uh, the first one was August 5, 2019. Then uh, October 1, 2019. Then we had, again, we had August 5, 2020. Now, August 5, 2020 was significant in the sense that we were just coming out of the COVID-19 lockdowns. And there was a lot of hunger and anger by, by September 2020, there were actually serious agitations by rank and file workers to have the Nigerian Labor Congress declare a national strike over the incessant increases in the price of petroleum products, the increase in the, in the value-added tax, the increase in electricity tariff. Uh, people actually, uh, I mean, workers were actually coming out to pressure the labor bureaucracy to do something. And um, of course, the NSC declared a strike that was to happen September 28, which they later called off. Uh, so by October 1, uh, when the revolutionary 
now movement now declare its own mass protest. It was seen as uh, 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 the outlet that everybody was waiting for. So the October 1 protest was actually very massive. It happened uh, in over 30 states of the country. And uh, despite extreme police intimidation, um, people came out on October 1, you know, to have that protest. But interestingly, why? Uh, because over close to 50 people were detained in the aftermath of the October 1 protest. Uh, so why we are still trying to get people out of uh, police detention and all of that, uh, these young people came October 3rd to camp before the Lagos House Assembly. And the immediate spot for that was an incident that happened in a small town in the Niger Delta. A member of this rural police unit actually stopped a young man driving uh, a push car, you know. Uh, of course, they target such people, young people driving push cars, big cars, expensive cars, or wearing ex expensive clothing. So this young chap was uh, in the car, and uh, he was stopped by the, the police, the SAS guy, and uh, I think he didn't stop in time, so he opened fire on him. Somebody else was streaming that live on Twitter. So that went viral. Uh, it was later discovered that the guy didn't die anyway. But the story was already out that uh, uh, this, uh, the guy had been murdered, you know. And so uh, that was the, that actually was the immediate spot uh, that led to these other guys that came out in Lagos uh, camping before the Lagos, Lagos State House Assembly actually sleeping overnight, which was a new twist to protest in Nigeria. Uh, they, re they refused to leave, so they were sleeping over. Uh, and so later on, when we got to know what was happening, uh, we felt we should lend support to what they were doing because uh, we were all affected anyway. And so uh, more and more people joined. Uh, and so the process became uh, increasingly escalated and quite massive. So from October 3rd to October 10th, uh, the protest was on, uh, got in, uh, increasingly bigger and bigger, and more and more intense, and more and more politicized. The demands started to increase beyond uh, scrapping of the rogue police unit concerts. Uh, it will interest you to know that uh, a Nigerian senator, yeah, much more than the American president. <laughs> so, there were, so there were issues around uh, the humongous the paid, the politicians were allotting to themselves while uh, other, most Nigerians were sovereign. So the government at some point got very jittery. And so on October 10, they decided to move out the army. The police proved absolutely capable of actually uh, suppressing the protest. Uh, they tried other methods they have been using in the past, such as using sponsored talks. They brought their talks to beat up protesters. Uh, that didn't work because uh, the number of protesters was, I mean, was so massive that uh, 
no number of talk could uh, overwhelm that. Um, they used every other method in the books. It didn't work. And so they decided to bring out the army uh, in the 9th of October 10. And then we had the shootings and killings. And um, uh, so the, the protest became drowned in blood. But <clears throat> that also ignited what I would call the second phase of the protest. Uh, because now we had uh, people you will call Lompen, uh, Lompen elements, uh, uh, people actually have absolutely no stake in the system, homeless people and all of that, uh, coming out in mass and targeting police stations. In Lagos State, more than 20 police stations were bombed. Uh, courts were also bombed. And it's interesting that these guys were targeting uh, these institutions that uh, uh, represent pillars of oppression for, the, for them, you know. So they were targeting police stations, they were targeting the courts, they were targeting the homes of politicians, they were targeting, interestingly, they were also targeting warehouses where unknown to uh, the rest of us, uh, COVID-19 uh, relief materials donated by mm. corporate and foreign organizations were stored by politicians. Uh, mm. And that further inflamed passions because we started seeing video recordings of a massive amount of food that were already spoiled. So it was inconceivable mm. that while people were starving, these people were actually inhuman enough to keep that amount of food, you know, away mm. from the people. We had situations where some politicians have actually rebranded donated food packages with their pictures. You know, mm. they were they wanted to use the rebranded food packages for political campaigns. Um, so uh, we, we had situations where uh, enormous amount of money, materials. For instance, we had a situation where motorcycles, about 300 motorcycles, were discovered in the home of a politician. Uh, hmm. So all of these, of course, were going viral on social media, further aggravating popular anger, so more and more people were coming out. Uh, and so the killings continued because uh, the government felt exposed, blackmailed, uh, thoroughly discredited. And they felt the only way they could maintain their hold on power was just to uh, suppress uh, the movement by force. So uh, people talk a lot about October 10, but actually, uh, more people were killed after October 10, um, especially when the protests also became more violent, you know, and uh, police stations were getting targeted. Um, so, uh, um, eventually, the, the protests were subdued by force, and um, we've had this uneasy camp since then. Uh, 
since October, <laughs> October 2020. Uh, for us in the uh, mass democratic movement, we see it as uh, both uh, as a talent and also as an opportunity um, to actually deepen our work among uh, working people and also to reiterate because like people also gain more confidence uh, from what happened. The politicians were demystified and exposed as cheap thieves that they are. And uh, um, so the, the task now is actually to uh, get people organized around the commonality of interest that unite everybody around livelihoods, around uh, uh, you know, uh, the need for security, the need for accountable governance, uh, you know, um, because the other emerging scenario is the tendency towards ethno-religious mobilization. Increasingly, we are, we are also having people interpreting the crisis in terms of uh, uh, religious, ethnic differences. Uh, so they play up that and uh, insist that uh, the only way out is for the country to be divided along ethnic and religious lines. We feel that is extremely dangerous. Uh, that takes away attention from the real issues because the fact remains that the criminal politicians doing all of this cut across, you know, uh, all the ethnicities or the religions. Uh, that might be professed by these politicians. It's cut across. So we cannot reduce this crisis to such primordial sentiments. But those are sentiments that are also very quick to draw attention and to also uh, uh, achieve uh, faster uh, responses you know, in terms of mobilization. So we are kind of caught in the middle we have to fight an increasingly corrupt, extremely nepotistic government. And of course, the nepotism of the Buhari government and its uh, obvious, um, uh, you know, uh, the tendency for the Buhari government to put the interests seemingly of uh, the Fulani uh, ethnic group above every other interest, you know, further helps to deepen the ethno-religious divide. Uh, so it makes our work very difficult. We have to uh, argue with our people to see these issues in a broader perspective of uh, a privileged few that wants to maintain their hold and uh, the larger interest of all of us, irrespective of religion or ethnicity, um, uh, so, so increasingly for us, uh, the, the challenge is to pass on that message to, re, to, to build a movement that will be above those sentiments because we fear that if we allow, uh, those base sentiments to overrule, uh, the other 
major basic issues. Uh, then we may be ending for uh, a very cataclysmic uh, crisis because religious and ethnic wars are actually more difficult and uh, more bloody to handle. So, um, so that that's where we are now to actually refocus popular attention to the fundamental socioeconomic contradictions and to get everybody uh, on board to, to rather than we have also discovered that some of these politicians are also responsible actually uh, for sponsoring these ethno religious agitations mm -hmm. uh, yes so uh, uh, so they have enormous resources to mobilize very hungry people uh, to come out on these uh, ethno-religious agitations and mobilizations, uh, whereas we we don't have those kind of resources to work with to actually organize our people in the neighborhoods. Uh, particularly, it's becoming increasingly important for us to be able to organize neighborhood defense committees for mm -hmm. people to be able to defend themselves against uh, the so-called hessmen uh, and other criminal gangs are actually preying on people, uh, especially in the rural communities, uh, and making work impossible in rural communities. Uh, I mean, I, li I like what you said um, before about, you know, an opportunity for the, like, grassroots democracy movement. I mean, livelihoods, security, accountable governance, equity for, for everyone across difference. Um, you know, not letting corrupt politicians, self-interested leaders divide people uh, by religion or ethnicity. Yes. Um, and keeping focused on this kind of um, what sounds like a pretty intense coalition of demonstrators out on the street fighting for these things. You know, everyone from middle class kids to uh, homeless population yes. can be united around a vision of, of democracy that is inclusive of all and leads to accountable governance that yeah. the people of Nigeria and all people deserve. And I just really want you to thank you again, um, Brother Benga, for like illuminating us on the uh, NSARS movement and the deeper like importance of that movement for the, for the future of um, Nigeria. It's also very um, important story I'm glad we can share with our listeners. Thank you so much again, Brother Venga. The pleasure is mine. Thank you very much yeah, for the opportunity. Benga just painted an amazing picture of how workers in the most marginalized communities across Nigeria are taking back their communities by joining together, organizing together, standing up to injustice. They are opposing decades of widespread systemic corruption that feeds off unbridled and multiple sources of state-sponsored violence. And Banka also demonstrated so clearly how police violence embodied in the Nigerian Special Anti-Robbery Squad is a manifestation of the economic and social inequality and a lack of justice and fairness that too many people across Nigeria experience every day. In Nigeria, Hashtag NSARS is not only a call to stop police violence, it's a call for fairness and social justice.
Hi there, it's Shauna again. I just wanted to take a minute to invite you to check out Radio Labor, the international labor movement's radio service. Radio Labor produces daily newscasts about union events and issues, and it also produces special programs to support labor campaigns around the world. Check out Radio Labor at radiolabour.net and find out more about worker rights struggles around the world and how the movement is supporting their efforts for decent wages, fair treatment, and strong communities. Follow and subscribe at radiolabor.net. When we spoke this past summer with Francisco Maltez, he told us how huge, months-long nationwide protests earlier this year succeeded in preserving public health care and halting government moves to give wealthy corporations and rich individuals big tax breaks while raising taxes on working people. These protests continued despite widespread state violence that was often directed against workers women, and black and indigenous communities. As Francisco tells us, state violence against the most marginalized, it's been happening for a long time. So when a diverse coalition stood up to a government that was serving the wealthy at the expense of everyone else and were met with extraordinary violence from the security forces, the Unitary Workers Center, or CUT as it's known in Colombia, worked through the National Strike Committee to demand real reforms in policing. Brother Francisco, can you give us a brief summary of how police violence has been directed specifically at marginalized communities in Colombia. Black communities and mixed race communities in particular have seen an enormous amount of police violence and brutality. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Justice and police activity in Colombia can be characterized as being directed at poor people. There are hundreds of cases of embezzlement among government organizations or agencies that are not investigated or when they are people receive slap on the a slap on the wrist recently an influencer uh, damaged some public property that was of little importance and was sentenced to 6 years in prison while there are people who steal billions of pesos and nothing is done with them Likewise, uh, in terms of the police, people or the police who shot at young people at peaceful protesters uh, are not being investigated. And who the police do act against are uh, rural agricultural workers, indigenous people, people in the LGBTQ community, peaceful protesters. And so we say that justice and repression in Colombia have a common goal, which is to bother people who are struggling while nothing happening happens to people who are doing well. And so what does police reform look like to you, given what you've just described, like brutality directed at poor people uh, in, in the country over many years with total impunity? What would you like to see from 
uh, a reform of the police. No, gracias. Creo que se han tocado todos los temas. The National Strike Committee has proposed a bill for reforming the National Police Force. The first part of this is to propose to have the National Police moved from operating under the Defense Ministry to being under a civil ministry. The second point is to change the National Police's militaristic orientation to be civilian-focused. The third point is to establish measures as to who can become a police person to put in place a rigorous selection process to ensure that the best people join the police force. The fourth is to carry out a civilian audit to investigate and sanction police so that the police don't continue to, for lack of a better word, self-police or investigate themselves. This would be an outside body that would um, carry out this audit to investigate and sanction the uh, police or poli members of the police uh, who had committed violations. Uh, and the sanctions would be uh, strict so that, so that what is happening currently would not continue to happen. That is our proposed bill as far as reforming the National Police. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your leadership. Muchas gracias. Gracias, Chana. Gracias, Ernesto. Gracias a todo el equipo técnico. Muy amable. Muchas gracias. Francisco and Benga described the horrific instances of police violence against social change movements. And they made the point that widespread police violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. It goes hand in hand with social and economic inequality and state-sponsored repression of democratic freedoms. But in Nigeria and in Colombia, with organizations like FIWAN and CUT, people are standing up to this repression that is targeting democratic rights and freedoms. These organizations are offering specific multi-point plans to address police reforms to their governments and proposing alternative solutions that address inequalities, disenfranchisement, and put people's needs first. Thanks to Benga and Francisco for spending time with us again to share how people are taking back their communities and saying no to police violence and to government policies that benefit the rich at the expense of everyone else. You can follow and subscribe to the Solidarity Center podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. Learn more about the Solidarity Center at SolidarityCenter.org and follow our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Solidarity Center podcast is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, and our show is produced and engineered by Adam Yaffe. A special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers, dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. For the Solidarity Center podcast, I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening. <laughs>